Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Live, attenuated, tetravalent butantan dengue vaccine in children and adults. Background. Butantan dengue vaccine, butantan DV, is an investigational, single-dose, live, attenuated, tetravalent vaccine against dengue disease, but data on its overall efficacy are needed. Methods In an ongoing Phase 3, double-blind trial in Brazil, we randomly assigned participants to receive butantan DV or placebo, with stratification according to age, 2 to 6 years, 7 to 17 years, and 18 to 59 years. Five years of follow-up is planned. The objectives of the trial were to evaluate overall vaccine efficacy against symptomatic, virologically confirmed dengue of any serotype occurring more than 28 days after vaccination, the primary efficacy endpoint, regardless of SARA status at baseline, and to describe safety up to day 21, the primary safety endpoint. Here, vaccine efficacy was assessed on the basis of two years of follow-up for each participant, and safety is solicited vaccine-related adverse events reported up to day 21 after injection. Key secondary objectives were to assess vaccine efficacy among participants according to dengue SARA status at baseline and according to the dengue viral serotype, efficacy according to age was also assessed. Results Over a three-year enrollment period, 16,235 participants received either butantan DV, 10,259 participants, or placebo, 5,976 participants. The overall two-year vaccine efficacy was 79.6%, 95% confidence interval, C, 70.0 to 86.3 minus 73.6%, 95% C, 57.6 to 83.7, among participants with no evidence of previous dengue exposure and 89.2%, 95% C, 77.6 to 95.6, among those with a history of exposure. Vaccine efficacy was 80.1%, 95% C, 66.0 to 88.4, among participants 2 to 6 years of age, 77.8%, 95% C, 55.6 to 89.6, among those 7 to 17 years of age, and 90.0%, 95% C, 68.2 to 97.5, among those 18 to 59 years of age. Efficacy against DENV1 was 89.5%, 95% C, 78.7 to 95.0, and against DEN2 was 69.6%, 95% C, 50.8 to 81.5. DEN3 and DEN4 were not detected during the follow-up period. 
solicited systemic vaccine or placebo-related adverse events within 21 days after injection were more common with butantan DV than with placebo, 58.3% of participants, versus 45.6%. Conclusions A single dose of butantan DV prevented symptomatic DENV1 and DENV2, regardless of dengue sera status at baseline, through two years of follow-up. Skin Antisepsis Before Surgical Fixation of Extremity Fractures Background Studies evaluating surgical site infection have had conflicting results with respect to the use of alcohol solutions containing iodine pavacrolex or chlorhexidine gluconate as skin antisepsis before surgery to repair a fractured limb, i.e., an extremity fracture. Methods In a cluster randomized, crossover trial at 25 hospitals in the United States and Canada, we randomly assigned hospitals to use a solution of 0.7% iodine pavacrolex in 74% isopropyl alcohol, iodine group, or 2% chlorhexidine gluconate in 70% isopropyl alcohol, chlorhexidine group, as preoperative antisepsis for surgical procedures to repair extremity fractures. Every two months, the hospitals alternated interventions. Separate populations of patients with either open or closed fractures were enrolled and included in the analysis. The primary outcome was surgical site infection, which included superficial incisional infection within 30 days or deep incisional or organ space infection within 90 days. The secondary outcome was unplanned reoperation for fracture healing complications. Results A total of 6,785 patients with a closed fracture and 1,700 patients with an open fracture were included in the trial. In the closed fracture population, surgical site infection occurred in 77 patients, 2.4%, in the iodine group and in 108 patients, 3.3%, in the chlorhexidine group, odds ratio, 0.74. 95% confidence interval, C, 0.55 to 1.00. P equals 0.049. In the open fracture population, surgical site infection occurred in 54 patients, 6.5%, in the iodine group and in 60 patients, 7.3%, in the chlorhexidine group, odd ratio, 0.86, 95% C, 0.58 to 1.27, P equals 0.45. The frequencies of unplanned reoperation, one-year outcomes, and serious adverse events were similar in the two groups. Conclusions Among patients with closed extremity fractures, skin antisepsis with iodine pavacrolex and alcohol resulted in fewer surgical site infections than antisepsis with chlorhexidine gluconate and alcohol. In patients with open fractures, the results were similar in the two groups. Trial of N-acetyl-L-leucine in Neiman-Pick disease type C Background Neiman-Pick disease type C is a rare lysosomal storage disorder. We evaluated the safety and efficacy of N-acetyl-L-leucine, NALL, an agent that potentially ameliorates lysosomal and metabolic dysfunction, for the treatment of Neiman-Pick disease type C. Methods In this double-blind, placebo-controlled, crossover trial, We randomly assigned patients four years of age or older with genetically confirmed Neiman-Pick disease type C in a 1-to-1 ratio to receive NAL for 12 weeks, 
followed by placebo for 12 weeks, or to receive placebo for 12 weeks, followed by null for 12 weeks. Null or matching placebo was administered orally 2 to 3 times per day, with patients 4 to 12 years of age receiving weight-based doses, 2 to 4 grams per day, and those 13 years of age or older receiving a dose of 4 grams per day. The primary endpoint was the total score on the scale for the assessment and rating of ataxia, SARA, range, 0 to 40, with lower scores indicating better neurologic status. Secondary endpoints included scores on the clinical global impression of improvement, the spinocerebellar ataxia functional index, and the modified disability rating scale. Crossover data from the two 12-week periods in each group were included in the comparisons of NAL with placebo. Results A total of 60 patients 5 to 67 years of age were enrolled. The mean baseline SARA total scores used in the primary analysis were 15.88 before receipt of the first dose of NAL, 60 patients and 15.68 before receipt of the first dose of placebo, 59 patients, one patient never received placebo. The mean plus or minus change from baseline in the SARA total score was minus 1.97 plus or minus 2.43 points after 12 weeks of receiving NAL and minus 0.60 plus or minus 2.39 points after 12 weeks of receiving placebo, least squares mean difference, minus 1.28 points, 95% confidence interval, minus 1.91 to minus 0.65, P less than 0.001. The results for the secondary endpoints were generally supportive of the findings in the primary analysis, but these were not adjusted for multiple comparisons. The incidence of adverse events was similar with NAL and placebo, and no treatment-related serious adverse events occurred. Conclusions Among patients with Niemann-Pick disease type C, treatment with NAL for 12 weeks led to better neurologic status than placebo. A longer period is needed to determine the long-term effects of this agent in patients with Niemann-Pick disease type C. CRISPR-Cas9 in vivo gene editing of KLKB1 for hereditary angioedema. Background Hereditary angioedema is a rare genetic disease that leads to severe and unpredictable swelling attacks. NTLA-2002 is an in vivo gene editing therapy based on clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, CRISPR-CRISPR-associated protein 9. NTLA-2002 targets the gene encoding calocrine B1, KLKB1, with the goal of lifelong control of angioedema attacks after a single dose. In this phase 1 dose escalation portion of a combined phase 1 to 2 trial of NTLA 2002 in adults with hereditary angioedema, we administered NTLA 2002 at a single dose of 25 mg, 50 mg, or 75 mg. The primary endpoints were the safety and side effect profile of NTLA 2002 therapy. Secondary and exploratory endpoints included pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, and clinical efficacy determined on the basis of investigator-confirmed angioedema attacks. Results Three patients received 25 mg of NTLA-2002, four received 50 mg, and three received 75 mg. At all dose levels, the most common adverse events were infusion-related reactions and fatigue. No dose-limiting toxic effects, serious adverse events, grade 3 or higher adverse events, or clinically important laboratory findings were observed after the administration of NTLA-2002. 
dose-dependent reductions in the total plasma calicrane protein level were observed between baseline and the latest assessment, with a mean percentage change of minus 67% in the 25 mg group, minus 84% in the 50 mg group, and minus 95% in the 75 mg group. The mean percentage change in the number of angioedema attacks per month between baseline and weeks 1 through 16, primary observation period, was minus 91% in the 25 mg group, minus 97% in the 50 mg group, and minus 80% in the 75 mg group. Among all the patients, the mean percentage change in the number of angioedema attacks per month from baseline through the latest assessment was minus 95%. Conclusions In this small study, a single dose of NTLA-2002 led to robust, dose-dependent, and durable reductions in total plasma calicrane levels, and no severe adverse events were observed. In exploratory analyzes, reductions in the number of angioedema attacks per month were observed at all dose levels. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Neurodevelopmental Outcomes of Extremely Preterm Infants Fed Donor Milk or Preterm Infant Formula. A Randomized Clinical Trial. Importance Maternal Milk Feeding of Extremely Preterm Infants During the Birth Hospitalization Has Been Associated with Better Neurodevelopmental Outcomes Compared with Preterm Formula. For infants receiving no or minimal maternal milk, it is unknown whether donor human milk conveys similar neurodevelopmental advantages versus preterm formula. Objective to determine if nutrient-fortified, pasteurized donor human milk improves neurodevelopmental outcomes at 22 to 26 months corrected age compared with preterm infant formula among extremely preterm infants who received minimal maternal milk. Intervention preterm formula or donor human milk feeding from randomization to 120 days of age, death, or hospital discharge. Main outcomes and measures The primary outcome was the Bailey Scales of Infant and Toddler Development, BSID, cognitive score measured at 22 to 26 months corrected age, a score of 54, score range, 54 to 155, a score of greater than or equal to 85 indicates no neurodevelopmental delay, was assigned to infants who died between randomization and 22 to 26 months corrected age. The 24 secondary outcomes included PSID language and motor scores, in-hospital growth, necrotizing enterocolitis, and death. Results of 1965 eligible infants, 483 were randomized, 239 in the donor milk group and 244 in the preterm formula group. The median gestational age was 26 weeks, IQR, 25 to 27 weeks. The median birth weight was 840 grams, IQR, 676 to 986 grams, and 52% were female. The birthing parents' race was self-reported as black for 52%, 247, 478, white for 43%, 206, 478, and other for 5%, 25, 478. There were 54 infants who died prior to follow-up, 88%, 376, 429 of survivors were assessed at 22 to 26 months corrected age. The adjusted mean SID cognitive score was 80.7, SD. 17.4, for the donor milk group versus 81.1, SD, 16.7, for the preterm formula group, adjusted mean difference, minus 0.77, 95% C, 
minus 3.93 to 2.39, which was not significant, the adjusted mean SID language and motor scores also did not differ. Mortality, death prior to follow-up, was 13%, 29,231, in the donor milk group versus 11%, 25,233, in the preterm formula group, adjusted risk difference, minus 1%, 95% C, minus 4% to 2%. Necrotizing enterocolitis occurred in 4.2% of infants, 10,239, in the donor milk group versus 9.0% of infants, 22,244, in the preterm formula group, adjusted risk difference, minus 5%, 95% C, minus 9% to minus 2%. Weight gain was slower in the donor milk group, 22.3 grams slash kg slash d, 95% c, 21.3 to 23.3 grams slash kg slash d, compared with the preterm formula group, 24.6 grams slash kg slash d, 95% c, 23.6 to 25.6 grams slash kg slash d. Conclusions and relevance among extremely preterm neonates fed minimal maternal milk, Neurodevelopmental outcomes at 22 to 26 months corrected age did not differ between infants fed donor milk or preterm formula. Functional outcomes after localized prostate cancer treatment. Importance adverse outcomes associated with treatments for localized prostate cancer remain unclear. Objective to compare rates of adverse functional outcomes between specific treatments for localized prostate cancer. Design, setting, and participants an observational cohort study using data from five U.S. surveillance, epidemiology, and end results program registries. Participants were treated for localized prostate cancer between 2011 and 2012. Main outcomes and measures outcomes were patient-reported sexual, urinary, bowel, and hormone function measured using the 26-item expanded prostate cancer index composite, range, 0 to 100, 100 equals best. Associations of specific therapies with each outcome were estimated and compared at 10 years after treatment, adjusting for corresponding baseline scores, and patient and tumor characteristics. Minimum clinically important differences were 10 to 12 for sexual function, 6 to 9 for urinary incontinence, 5 to 7 for urinary irritation, and 4 to 6 for bowel and hormone function. Results a total of 2,445 patients with localized prostate cancer, median age, 64 years, 14% black, 8% Hispanic, were included and followed up for a median of 9.5 years. Among 1877 patients with favorable prognosis, radical prostatectomy was associated with worse urinary incontinence, adjusted mean difference, minus 12.1, 95% C, minus 16.2 to minus 8.0, but not worse sexual function, adjusted mean difference, minus 7.2, 95% C, minus 12.3 to minus 2.0, compared with active surveillance. Among 568 patients with unfavorable prognosis, radical prostatectomy was associated with worse urinary incontinence, adjusted mean difference, minus 26.6, 95% C, minus 35.0 to minus 18.2, but not worse sexual function, adjusted mean difference, minus 1.4, 95% C, minus 11.1 to 8.3, compared with external beam radiotherapy with androgen deprivation therapy.
Among patients with unfavorable prognosis, external beam radiotherapy with androgen deprivation therapy was associated with worse bowel, adjusted mean difference, minus 4.9, 95% C, minus 9.2 to minus 0.7, and hormone, adjusted mean difference, minus 4.9, 95% C, minus 9.5 to minus 0.3, function compared with radical prostatectomy. Conclusions and relevance among patients treated for localized prostate cancer, radical prostatectomy was associated with worse urinary incontinence but not worse sexual function at 10-year follow-up compared with radiotherapy or surveillance among people with more favorable prognosis and compared with radiotherapy for those with unfavorable prognosis. Among men with unfavorable prognosis disease, external beam radiotherapy with androgen deprivation therapy was associated with worse bowel and hormone function at 10-year follow-up compared with radical prostatectomy. Next article from Nature Medicine. First-line Sujmalimab with chemotherapy for advanced esophageal squamous cell carcinoma, a randomized phase 3 study. Although anti-programmed death 1 antibody plus chemotherapy has recently been approved for first-line esophageal squamous cell carcinoma, ESCC, anti-programmed death ligand 1 antibody may offer another combination option in this setting. In this multicenter, randomized, double-blinded phase 3 trial a total of 540 adults, aged 18 to 75 years, with unresectable, locally advanced, recurrent or metastatic ESCC and who had not received systemic treatment were enrolled. All patients were randomized at 2 to 1 to receive either sushmalimab, an anti-PD-L1 antibody, 1,200 mg, or placebo every 3 weeks for up to 24 months, plus chemotherapy, cisplatin 80 mg m-2 on day 1 plus 5 fluorouracil 800 mg m-2 day minus 1 on days 1 to 4, every 3 weeks for up to 6 cycles. At the pre-specified interim analysis this study had met dual primary endpoints. With a median follow-up of 15.2 months, the prolongation of progression-free survival was statistically significant with sujmalimab plus chemotherapy compared with placebo plus chemotherapy, median 6.2 versus 5.4 months, hazard ratio 0.67, 95% confidence interval 0.54 to 0.82, P equals 0.0002, as assessed by Blinded Independent Central Review. Overall survival was also superior with Sujmalimab chemotherapy, median 15.3 versus 11.5 months, hazard ratio 0.70, 95% confidence interval 0.55 to 0.90, P equals 0.0076. A significantly higher objective response rate, 60.1 versus 45.2%, as assessed by Blinded Independent Central Review was observed with Sushmalimab chemotherapy. The incidence of grade 3 or above treatment-related adverse events, 51.3 versus 48.4%, was comparable between the two groups. Sushmalimab plus chemotherapy significantly prolonged progression-free survival and overall survival in treatment-naive patients with advanced ESCC, with no unexpected safety signal. Next article from British Medical Journal. Atypia detected during breast screening and subsequent development of cancer, 
Observational Analysis of the Sloan Atypia Prospective Cohort in England Objective to explore how the number and type of breast cancers developed after screen detected atypia compare with the anticipated 11.3 cancers detected per 1,000 women screened within one three-year screening round in the United Kingdom. Design Observational Analysis of the Sloan Atypia Prospective Cohort in England Setting atypia diagnoses through the English NHS Breast Screening Program reported to the Sloan Cohort Study. This cohort is linked to the English Cancer Registry and the Mortality and Birth Information System for information on subsequent breast cancer and mortality. Participants 3,238 women diagnosed as having epithelial atypia between April 1, 2003 and June 30, 2018. Main outcome measures number and type of invasive breast cancers detected at 1, 3, and 6 years after atypia diagnosis by atypia type, age, and year of diagnosis. Results There was a fourfold increase in detection of atypia after the introduction of digital mammography between 2010 and equals 119 and 2015 and equals 502. During 1908 person years of follow-up after atypia diagnosis until December 2018, 141 women developed breast cancer. Cumulative incidence of cancer per 1,000 women with atypia was 0.95, 95% confidence interval 0.28 to 2.69, 14.2, 10.3 to 19.1, and 45.0, 36.3 to 55.1 at 1, 3, and 6 years after atypia diagnosis, respectively. Women with atypia detected more recently have lower rates of subsequent cancers detected within three years, 6.0 invasive cancers per 1,000 women, 95% confidence interval 3.1 to 10.9, in 2013 18 v 24.3, 13.7 to 40.1, in 2003 07, and 24.6, 14.9 to 38.3, in 2008-12. Grade Size and nodal involvement of subsequent invasive cancers were similar to those of cancers detected in the general screening population, with equal numbers of ipsilateral and contralateral cancers. Conclusions Many atypia could represent risk factors rather than precursors of invasive cancer requiring surgery in the short term. Women with atypia detected more recently have lower rates of subsequent cancers detected, which might be associated with changes to mammography and biopsy techniques identifying forms of atypia that are more likely to represent overdiagnosis. Annual mammography in the short term after atypia diagnosis might not be beneficial. More evidence is needed about longer-term risks. Next article from Lancet. Conservative versus liberal oxygenation targets in critically ill children, OxyPICU, a UK multi-center, open, parallel group, randomized clinical trial. Background The optimal target for systemic oxygenation in critically ill children is unknown. Liberal oxygenation is widely practiced, but has been associated with harm in pediatric patients. We aim to evaluate whether conservative oxygenation would reduce duration of organ support or incidence of death compared to standard care. Methods OxyPICU was a pragmatic, multi-center, open-label, randomized controlled trial in 15 UK pediatric intensive care units, PICUs. Children admitted as an emergency, 
who were older than 38 weeks corrected gestational age and younger than 16 years receiving invasive ventilation and supplemental oxygen were randomly allocated in a one-to-one ratio via a concealed, central, web-based randomization system to conservative peripheral oxygen saturations, SPO2, 88-92%, or liberal, SPO2 greater than 94%, targets. The primary outcome was the duration of organ support at 30 days following random allocation, a rank-based endpoint with death either on or before day 30 is the worst outcome, a score equating to 31 days of organ support, with survivors assigned a score between 1 and 30 depending on the number of calendar days of organ support received. Findings Between SEPT 1, 2020, and May 15, 2022, 2040 children were randomly allocated to conservative or liberal oxygenation groups. Consent was available for 1872, 92%, of 2040 children. The conservative oxygenation group comprised 939 children, 528, 57%, of 927 were female and 399, 43%, of 927 were male, and the liberal oxygenation group included 933 children, 511, 56%, of 920 were female and 409, 45%, of 920 were male. Duration of organ support or death in the first 30 days was significantly lower in the conservative oxygenation group, probabilistic index 0 middle.53, 95% C0 middle.50 to 0 middle.55, P equals 0 middle.04 Wilcoxon rank sum test, adjusted odds ratio 0 middle.84, 95% C0 middle.72 to 0 middle.99. Three specified adverse events were reported in 24, 3% of 939 patients in the conservative oxygenation group and 36, 4% of 933 patients in the liberal oxygenation group. Interpretation Among invasively ventilated children who were admitted as an emergency to a PICU receiving supplemental oxygen, a conservative oxygenation target resulted in a small, but significant, greater probability of a better outcome in terms of duration of organ support at 30 days or death when compared with a liberal oxygenation target. Widespread adoption of a conservative oxygenation saturation target, SPO2 88-92%, could help improve outcomes and reduce costs for the sickest children admitted to PICUs. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. A mission of radiotherapy after breast conserving surgery for women with breast cancer with low clinical and genomic risk, five-year outcomes of IDEA. Purpose. Multiple studies have shown a low risk of ipsilateral breast events, eBays, or other recurrences for selected patients age 65 to 70 years or older with stage I breast cancers treated with breast conserving surgery, BCS, and endocrine therapy, ET without adjuvant radiotherapy. We sought to evaluate whether younger postmenopausal patients could also be successfully treated without radiation therapy, adding a genomic assay to classic selection factors. Methods Postmenopausal patients age 50 to 69 years with PT1N0 unifocal invasive breast cancer with margins greater than or equal to 2M after BCS whose tumors were estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, 
and human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 negative with oncotype DX21 gene recurrence score less than or equal to 18 were prospectively enrolled in a single arm trial of radiotherapy emission if they consented to take at least 5 years of ET. The primary endpoint was the rate of local regional recurrence 5 years after BCS. Results Between June 2015 and October 2018, 200 eligible patients were enrolled. Among the 186 patients with clinical follow-up of at least 56 months, overall and breast cancer-specific survival rates at 5 years were both 100%. The 5-year freedom from any recurrence was 99%, 95% C, 96-100. to 100. Crude rates of eBase for the entire follow-up period for patients at age 50 to 59 years and age 60 to 69 years were 3.3%, 260, and 3.6%, 5140, respectively. Crude rates of overall recurrence were 5.0%, 360, and 3.6%, 5140, respectively. Conclusion this trial achieved a very low risk of recurrence using a genomic assay in combination with classic clinical and biologic features for treatment selection, including postmenopausal patients younger than 60 years. Long-term follow-up of this trial and others will help determine whether the option of avoiding initial radiotherapy can be offered to a broader group of women than current guidelines recommend. Next article from Journal of Hepatology. Adjusted Estimate of the Prevalence of Hepatitis Delta Virus in 25 Countries and Territories. Background and Names. Hepatitis Delta Virus, HDV, is a satellite RNA virus that requires the hepatitis B virus, HBV, for assembly and propagation. Individuals infected with HDV progress to advanced liver disease faster than HBV monoinfected individuals. Recent studies have estimated the global prevalence of anti-HDV antibodies among the HBV-infected population to be 5-15%. This study aimed to better understand HDV prevalence at the population level in 25 countries-slash-territories. Methods We conducted a literature review to determine the prevalence of anti-HDV and HDV RNA and hepatitis B surface antigen, HBS-AG, positive individuals in 25 countries-slash-territories. Virtual meetings were held with experts from each setting to discuss the findings and collect unpublished data. Data were weighted for patient segments and regional heterogeneity to estimate the prevalence in the HBV-infected population. The findings were then combined with the Polaris Observatory HBV data to estimate the anti-HDV and HDV RNA prevalence in each country-slash-territory at the population level. Results after adjusting for geographical distribution, disease stage and special populations, the anti-HDV prevalence among the HBS AG plus population changed from the literature estimate in 19 countries. The highest anti-HDV prevalence was 60.1% in Mongolia. Once adjusted for the size of the HBS AG plus population and HDV RNA positivity rate, China had the highest absolute number of HDV RNA plus cases. Conclusions we found substantially lower HDV prevalence than previously reported, as prior meta-analyses primarily focused on studies conducted in groups-slash-regions that have a higher probability of HBV infection, tertiary care centers, specific risk groups or geographical regions. There is large uncertainty in HDV prevalence estimates. 
The implementation of reflex testing would improve estimates, while also allowing earlier linkage to care for HDV RNA plus individuals. The logistical and economic burden of reflex testing on the health system would be limited, as only HBS AG plus cases would be screened. Impact and Implications There is a great deal of uncertainty surrounding the prevalence of hepatitis delta virus among people living with hepatitis B virus at the population level. In this study, we aim to better understand the burden in 25 countries and territories, to refine techniques that can be used in future analyses. We found a lower prevalence in the majority of places studied than had been previously reported. These data can help inform policymakers on the need to screen people living with hepatitis B virus to find those co-infected with hepatitis Delta virus and at high risk of progression, while also highlighting the pitfalls that other researchers have often fallen into. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology Real-world efficacy of dupilumab in severe, treatment refractory, and fibrostenotic patients with eosinophilic esophagitis. Background and aims. Dupilumab is approved for treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis, oh, but real-world data are lacking. We aim to determine the real-world efficacy of dupilumab in patients with severe, treatment refractory, and fibrostenotic O. Methods. We conducted a retrospective cohort study of O patients prescribed dupilumab and who were treatment refractory to standard modalities. Patient demographics, clinical characteristics, O history, and procedural data, including the histologically worst, predupilumab, and postdupilumab endoscopies, were extracted from medical records. Symptomatic, endoscopic, and histologic responses were assessed for the worst and predupilumab endoscopies compared with the postdupilumab endoscopy. Results. We identified 46 patients with refractory fibrostenotic O who were treated with dupilumab. Patients showed endoscopic, histologic, and symptomatic improvement on dupilumab compared with both the worst and the predupilumab esophagogastrodubidinoscopies. The peak eosinophil counts decreased markedly, and postdupilumab histologic response rates were 80% and 57% for fewer than 15 eosinophils per high-power field and 6 or fewer eosinophils per high-power field, respectively, and the endoscopic reference score decreased from 5.01 to 1.89, p less than 0.001 for all. Although the proportion of strictures was stable, there was a significant increase in the predilation esophageal diameter from 13.9 to 16.0 mm, P less than 0.001. Global symptom improvement was reported in 91%, P less than 0.001. Conclusions In this population of severe, refractory, and fibrostenotic O patients, most achieved histologic, endoscopic, and symptom improvement with a median of 6 months of dupilumab, and esophageal stricture diameter improved. Dupilumab has real-world efficacy for a severe O population, most of whom would not have qualified for prior clinical trials. Age-dependent female survival advantage in hepatocellular carcinoma, a multicenter cohort study. Background and aims. Hepatocellular carcinoma, HCC, has a higher incidence in males, but the association of sex with survival remains controversial. 
This study aimed to examine the effect of sex on HCC survival and its association with age. Methods Among 33,238 patients with HCC from 12 Chinese tertiary hospitals, 4,175 patients who underwent curative intent hepatectomy or ablation were analyzed. Cancer-specific survival, CSS, was analyzed using Cox regression and Kaplan-Meier methods. Two propensity score methods and multiple mediation analysis were applied to mitigate confounding. To explore the effect of estrogen, a candidate sex-specific factor that changes with age, female participants' history of estrogen use, and survival were analyzed. Results There were 3,321 males and 854 females included. A sex-related disparity of CSS was present and showed a typical age-dependent pattern, a female survival advantage over males appeared at the perimenopausal age of 45 to 54 years, hazard risk, HR, 0.77, 5-year CSS, 85.7% versus 70.6%, P equals 0.018, peaked at the early postmenopausal age of 55 to 59 years, HR, 0.57, 5-year CSS, 89.8% versus 73.5%, P equals 0.015, and was not present in the premenopausal, less than 45 years, and late postmenopausal groups, greater than or equal to 60Y. Consistent patterns were observed in patients after either ablation or hepatectomy. These results were sustained with propensity score analyses. Confounding or mediation effects accounted for only 19.5% of sex survival disparity. Female estrogen users had significantly longer CSS than non-users, HR, 0.74, 5-year CSS, 79.6% versus 72.5%, P equals 0.038. Conclusions A female survival advantage in HCC depends on age, and this may be associated with age-dependent, sex-specific factors. Next article from Blood. Two-year follow-up of lisocaptagene marilucillin relapsed or refractory large B-cell lymphoma in Transcend NHL 001. Lisocaptagene marilucil, lisocell, demonstrated significant efficacy with a manageable safety profile of third-line or later treatment for patients with relapsed or refractory, RR, large B-cell lymphoma, LBCL, in the Transcend NHL 001 study. Primary endpoints were adverse events, ACE, dose-limiting toxicities, and objective response rate, ORR, for independent review committee. Key secondary endpoints were complete response, CR, rate, duration of response, DOR, progression-free survival, PFS, and overall survival, OS. After two-year follow-up, patients could enroll in a separate study assessing long-term, less than or equal to 15 years, safety in OS. Lisocell treated patients, and equals 270, had a median age of 63 years, range, 18 to 86 years, and a median of three prior lines, range, 1 to 8, of systemic therapy, and 181 of them, 67%, had chemotherapy refractory LBCL. Median follow-up was 19.9 months. In efficacy evaluable patients, and equals 257, the ORR was 73% and CR rate was 53%. The median, 95% confidence interval, DOR, PFS and OS were 23.1, 8.6 to not reached, 6.8, 
3.3 to 12.7, and 27.3 months, 16.2 to 45.6, respectively. Estimated two-year door PFS and OS rates were 49.5%, 40.6%, and 50.5%, respectively. In the 90-day treatment emergent period, N equals 270, grade 3 to 4 cytokine release syndrome and neurological events occurred in 2% and 10% of patients, respectively. The most common grade greater than or equal to 3As in treatment emergent and post-treatment emergent periods, respectively, were neutropenia, 60% and 7%, and anemia, 37% and 6%. Lisocell demonstrated durable remissions and a manageable safety profile with no new safety signals during the two-year follow-up in patients with RRLBCL. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. Kidney Outcomes and Preservation of Kidney Function with Obinutuzumab in Patients with Lupus Nephritis, a Post-Hoc Analysis of the Nobility Trial. Objective. To determine whether adding obinutuzumab to standard-of-care lupus nephritis, LANE, therapy could improve the likelihood of long-term preservation of kidney function and do so with less glucocorticoids. Methods. Post-hoc analyses of the Phase II nobility trial were performed. Time to unfavorable kidney outcome, a composite of treatment failure, doubling of serum creatinine or death, lane flare, first 30% and 40% declines in estimated glomerular filtration rate, ECFR, from baseline, and chronic ECFR slope during the trial were compared between patients with active lane who were randomized to take obinutuzumab, N equals 63, or placebo, N equals 62, in combination with mycophenolate mephetal and glucocorticoids. The number of patients who achieved complete renal response, CRR, on 7.5 mg or less per day of prednisone was also determined. Results Obinutuzumab reduced the risk of developing the composite kidney outcome by 60%, lane flare by 57%, and first equal decline of 30% or 40% by 80% and 91%, respectively. Patients receiving obinutuzumab had a significantly slower decline in ECFR than patients receiving placebo, with an annualized ECFR slope advantage of 4.1 milliliters per minute slash 1.73 square meters slash year, 95% confidence interval 0.14 to 8.08. Overall, 38% of patients receiving obinutuzumab compared with 16% of patients receiving placebo achieved CRR at week 76 while receiving 7.5 mg or less per day of prednisone, P less than 0.01. At week 104, the difference did not achieve significance, 38% versus 22%, P equals 0.06. Conclusion Post-hoc analyses of nobility demonstrated that compared with standard-of-care therapy, obinutuzumab treatment resulted in superior preservation of kidney function and prevention of lane flares. More patients achieved CRR at week 76 with less glucocorticoid use in the obinutuzumab group. Next article from Circulation. Efficacy, safety, and tolerability of incliceron in patients with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, results from the Orion 5 randomized clinical trial. Background. 
Homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia is a genetic disease characterized by extremely high levels of low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, LDLC, and a high risk of premature cardiovascular events. The proof-of-concept study Orion 2, a study of Enclisiron in participants with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, showed that Enclisiron, a small interfering RNA that prevents production of the hepatic PCSK9 protein, Proprotein convertus subtilisin slash cushion type 9 could lead to durable reductions in LDLC levels when added to statins and azetamibin patients with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. Methods Orion 5 was a phase 3, 2 part, multicenter study in 56 patients with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia and elevated LDLC levels despite maximum tolerated doses of LDLC lowering therapies with or without lipoprotein apheresis. Patients eligible for Part 1, double-blind, 6 months, were randomized 2 to 1 to receive either 300 mg of enclisiron sodium, equivalent to 284 mg of enclisiron or placebo. Placebo-treated patients from Part 1 were transitioned to enclisiron in Part 2, open-label, 18 months. The primary endpoint was the percentage change in LDLC levels from baseline to day 150. Results the mean age of the patients was 42.7 years, and 60.7% were women. The mean baseline LDLC levels were 294.0 mg DL and 356.7 mg DL in the Enclisiron and placebo groups, respectively. The placebo corrected percentage change in LDLC level from baseline to day 150 was minus 1.68%, 95% C. Minus 29.19% to 25.83%, p equals 0.90, and the difference was not statistically significant between the enclisiron and placebo groups. The placebo corrected percentage change in PCSK9 levels from baseline to day 150 was minus 60.6% with enclisiron treatment, p less than 0.0001. This was sustained throughout the study confirming the effect of enclisiron on its biological target of PCSK9. No statistically significant differences between the enclisiron and placebo groups were observed in the levels of other lipids and lipoproteins, apolipoprotein B, total cholesterol, and non-high-density lipoprotein cholesterol. Adverse events and serious adverse events did not differ between the enclisiron and placebo groups throughout the study. Conclusions Enclisiron treatment did not reduce LDLC levels in patients with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia despite substantial lowering of PCSK9 levels. Enclisiron was well tolerated, and the safety findings were consistent with previously reported studies and the overall safety profile. American College of Cardiology. CRP modifies LP a related risk for CHD. Study questions. Does high sensitivity C reactive protein, HSCRP, modulate the association between lipoprotein A, LPA, and coronary heart disease, CHD, in the general population when defined as prevalent and incident events? Results. Among CHD free individuals, Increased LPA levels were associated with incident CHD irrespective of HSCRP concentration, fully adjusted subdistribution hazard ratios, SHRS, 95% confidence interval, for the highest versus lowest fifth of LPA distribution were 
1.23 to 1.72, and 1.48, 1.23 to 1.78, for an HSCRP group of less than 2 and greater than or equal to 2 mg L, respectively, with no interaction found between these two biomarkers on CHD risk, P4 interaction equals 0.82. In those with established CHD, Similar associations were seen only among individuals with HSCRP greater than or equal to 2 mg L, 1.34, 1.03 to 1.76, whereas among participants with an HSCRP concentration less than 2 mg L, there was no clear association between LPA and future CHD events, 1.29, 0.98 to 1.71, highest versus lowest fifth, fully adjusted models, P4 interaction equals 0.024. Conclusions While among CHD-free individuals LPA was significantly associated with incident CHD regardless of HSCRP in participants with CHD at baseline, LPA was related to recurrent CHD events only in those with residual inflammatory risk. These findings might guide adequate selection of high-risk patients for forthcoming LPA-targeting compounds. Perspective Mendelian randomization analysis suggests a potential causal effect of absolute LPA levels on human longevity defined as parental lifespan, health span, and all-cause mortality, JAMA Net Open 2020, February 28. This large population study demonstrates a high incremental risk attributable to LPA for recurrent CHD events when the HSCRP is greater than or equal to 2 mg L but I do not think it is generalizable. Other studies have not found similar relationships, possibly because in this study, only 15% of those with CHD at baseline were on statins and LDLC was only 4 mg DL higher at baseline in those with CHD. Most importantly, statins lower HSCRP by 35-50%, which would result in the majority less than 2 mg DL and many less than 1 mg DL. And while statins do not lower LPA, the lower the LDLC, the less attributable risk to LPA, particularly when the highest quintile of LPA in those with CHD is only mildly more elevated than those without baseline CHD. From Journals of the American College of Cardiology Outcomes according to coronary revascularization modality in the ischemia trial. Background. In the ischemia, international study of comparative health effectiveness with medical and invasive approaches, trial, the risk of ischemic events was similar in patients with stable coronary artery disease treated with an invasive, INV, strategy of angiography and percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, or surgical, coronary artery bypass grafting, CAB, coronary revascularization and a conservative, CON, strategy of initial medical therapy. Objectives. The authors analyzed separately the outcomes of INV patients treated with PCI or CAB. Methods. Patients without preceding primary outcome events were categorized as INV PCI or INV CAB from the time of revascularization. The ischemia primary outcome, composite of cardiovascular death, Protocol defined myocardial infarction or hospitalization for unstable angina, heart failure, or resuscitated cardiac arrest, was used. Results Among INV CAG patients, primary outcome events occurred in 84 of 512, 16.4%, 
at a median follow-up of 2.85 years, 48 events, 57.1%, occurred within 30 days after CAB, including 40 procedural knees. Among INVPCI patients, primary outcome events occurred in 147 of 1,500, 9.8%, at median follow-up of 2.94 years, 31 of which, 21.1%, occurred within 30 days after PCI, including 24 procedural knees. In comparison, 352 of 2,591 CON patients, 13.6%, had primary outcome events at a median follow-up of 3.2 years, 22 of which, 6.3%, occurred within 30 days of randomization. The adjusted primary outcome risks were higher after both CAB and PCI within 30 days, HR, 16.25, 95% C, 11.44 to 23.07 and HR, 2.99, 95% C, 1.97 to 4.53, and lower thereafter, 0.63, 95% C, 0.44 to 0.89 and 0.66, 95% C, 0.53 to 0.82. Conclusions In ischemia, early revascularization by PCI and CAB was associated with higher early risks and lower long-term risks of cardiovascular events compared with CON. The early risk was greatest after CAB, owing to protocol-defined procedural means. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Prevalence, Risk Factors and Clinical and Biochemical Characteristics of Alamtuzumab-Induced Graves' Disease Objective Atypical Graves' Disease, GD, is a common complication in multiple sclerosis, MS, patients treated with alamtuzumab. We present epidemiological, clinical, and biochemical characteristics of alamtuzumab-induced GD. Methods Retrospective follow-up study of MS patients treated with alamtuzumab from 2014 to 2020, including clinical course of GD, pregnancy outcome, and thyroid eye disease, TED. Results We enrolled 183 of 203 patients, 90%, 68% women, treated with alamtuzumab at four hospitals in Norway. 75, 41%, developed thyroid dysfunction, of whom 58 77% had GD. Median time from the first dose of alamtuzumab to GD diagnosis was 25 months, range 0 to 64. 24 of 58 GD patients, 41%, had alternating phases of hyper and hypothyroidism. Thyrotropin receptor antibodies became undetectable in 23 of 58, 40%, and they could discontinue antithyroid drug treatment after a median of 22, range 2 to 58, months. Conversely, 26, 44%, had active disease during a median follow-up of 39 months, range, 11 to 72. Two patients, 3%, received definitive treatment with radioiodine, 6, 10%, with thyroidectomy. 9 developed TED, 16%, 7 had mild and 2 moderate to severe disease. 4 patients completed pregnancy, all without maternal or fetal complications. Patients who developed GD had a lower frequency of new MS relapses and MRI lesions than those without. Conclusion GD is a very common complication of alamtuzumab treatment and is characterized by alternating hyper and hypothyroidism. 
both remission rates and the prevalence of TED were lower than those reported for conventional GD. Pregnancies were uncomplicated and GD was associated with a lower risk of subsequent MS activity. Tyrtsepatide Immunogenicity on Pharmacokinetics, Efficacy, and Safety, Analysis of Data from Phase 3 Studies Context Antidrug antibodies, ADA, can potentially affect drug pharmacokinetics, safety, and efficacy. Objective This work aimed to evaluate treatment emergent, TAY, ADA and Tyrtsepatide, TCP-treated participants across seven Phase 3 trials and their potential effect on pharmacokinetics, efficacy, and safety. Methods ADA were assessed at baseline and throughout the study until endpoint, defined as week 40, surpass 1, minus 2, and minus 5, or week 52, surpass 3, minus 4, Japan mono, and Japan combo. Samples for ADA characterization were collected at surpass trial sites. Participants included ADA-evaluable TZP-treated patients with type 2 diabetes, and equals 5,025. Interventions included TZP5, 10, or 15 mg. ADA were detected and characterized for their ability to cross-react with native glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, GIP, and glucagon-like peptide 1, NGLP1, neutralized tyrtsepatide activity on GIP and GLP1 receptors, and neutralized GIP and NGLP1. Results TAE developed in 51.1% of tyrtsepatide-treated patients. Proportions were similar across dose groups. Maximum ADA titers range from 120 to 1, 81,920 among TAE plus patients. Neutralizing antibodies, NAB, against TZP activity on GIP and GLP-1 receptors were observed in 1.9% and 2.1% of patients, respectively. Less than 1.0% of patients had cross-reactive NAB against GIP or NGLP-1. TAE status, ADA titer, and NAB status had no effect on the pharmacokinetics or efficacy of TZP. More TAE-ADA plus patients experienced hypersensitivity reactions or injection site reactions than TAE-ADA patients. The majority of hypersensitivity and injection site reactions were non-serious and non-severe, and most events occurred and or resolved irrespective of TAE-ADA status or titer. Conclusion Immunogenicity did not affect TZP pharmacokinetics or efficacy. The majority of hypersensitivity or injection site reactions experienced by TAE-ADA plus patients were mild to moderate in severity. Next article from Neurology Association between hippocampal volumes and cognition in cerebral amyloid angiopathy Background and Objectives Accumulating evidence suggests that gray matter atrophy, often considered a marker of Alzheimer's disease AD, can also result from cerebral small vessel disease, CSVD. Cerebral amyloid angiopathy, CAA, is a form of sporadic CSVD, diagnosed through neuroimaging criteria, that often co-occurs with AD pathology and leads to cognitive impairment. We sought to identify the role of hippocampal integrity in the development of cognitive impairment in a cohort of patients with possible and probable CAA. Methods Patients were recruited from an ongoing CAA study at Massachusetts General Hospital. Composite scores defined performance in the cognitive domains of memory, 
language, executive function, and processing speed. Hippocampal subfields volumes were measured from 3T MRI, using an automated method, and multivariate linear regression models were used to estimate their association with each cognitive domain and relationship to CAA-related neuroimaging markers. Results 120 patients, 36 with possible, age mean range, 75.6, 65.6 to 88.9, 67 with probable CAA, 75.9, 59.0 to 94.0 and 17 controls without cognitive impairment and CSVD, 72.4, 62.5 to 82.7, 76.4% female patients, were included in this study. We found a positive association between all investigated hippocampal subfields and memory and language, whereas specific subfields accounted for executive function, CA4, estimate equals 5.43, 95% C1.26 to 9.61, P equals 0.020, subiculum, estimate equals 2.85, 95% C0.67 to 5.02, P equals 0.022, and processing speed, subiculum, estimate equals 1.99, 95% C0.13 to 3.85, P equals 0.036. These findings were independent of other CAA-related markers, which did not have an influence on cognition in this cohort. Peak width of skeletonized mean diffusivity, PSMD, a measure of white matter integrity, was negatively associated with hippocampal subfields volumes, CA3, Estimate equals minus 0.012, 95% C minus 0.020 to minus 0.004, P equals 0.034, CA4, estimate equals minus 0.010, 95% C minus 0.020 to minus 0.0007, P equals 0.037, subiculum, estimate equals minus 0.019. 95% C minus 0.042 to minus 0.0001, P equals 0.003. Discussion These results suggest that hippocampal integrity is an independent contributor to cognitive impairment in patients with CAA and that it might be related to loss of integrity in the white matter. Further studies exploring potential causes and directionality of the relationship between white matter and hippocampal integrity may be warranted. Bisphosphonates in glucocorticoid-treated patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a systematic review and grading of the evidence. Background and Objectives Bisphosphonates are routinely used to treat osteoporosis in patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, DMD, a rare, severely debilitating neuromuscular disease. We sought to synthesize and grade benefits and harms evidence of bisphosphonates in glucocorticoid-treated patients with DMD. Methods in this systematic review, Prospero identifier, CRD4202057606, we searched Medline, Sinal, and Base, PsychInfo, Web of Science, and Central for articles published from inception up to and including March 31, 2023, reporting results in any language from any study type. Quality of evidence was assessed using the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluations framework. Results 
We identified 19 publications involving 1,010 children and adults from 12 countries across all inhabited continents except South America. We found high-quality evidence that bisphosphonates significantly increase the aerial lumbar spine bone mineral density, BMD, Z-score in glucocorticoid-treated patients with DMD. The greatest improvements were recorded in controlled settings among patients treated with intravenous sildrenate. Evidence of benefits to fracture risks was inconclusive and or of low quality, primarily due to lack of controlled data and small samples. Bisphosphonates were generally well tolerated, although adverse events related to the first infusion, i.e., acute phase reaction, were frequently reported. Discussion There is high-quality evidence supporting the use of bisphosphonates to increase the aerial lumbar spine BMDZ score in patients with DMD and glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis. Our synthesis and grading affirm current recommendations put forward in the 2018 DMD clinical care considerations and should be helpful in raising awareness about anticipated benefits of bisphosphonates, prevailing unmet needs, and potential safety issues in their use. Next article from Chest. Is tobacco use associated with risk of recurrence and mortality among people with TB? Background. Associations between tobacco use and poor TB treatment outcomes are well documented. However, for important outcomes such as TB recurrence or relapse and mortality during treatment, as well as for associations with smokeless tobacco, SD, the evidence is not summarized systematically. Research question. Is tobacco use associated with risk of poor treatment outcomes among people with TB? Study design and methods. The Medline, Embase, and Cumulative Index of Nursing and Allied Health Literature databases were searched on November 22, 2021. Epidemiologic studies reporting associations between tobacco use and at least one TB treatment outcome were eligible. Independent double screening, extractions, and quality assessments were undertaken. Random effects meta-analyses were conducted for the two primary review outcomes, TB recurrence or relapse and mortality during treatment, and heterogeneity was explored using subgroups. Other outcomes were synthesized narratively. Results Our searches identified 1,249 records, of which 28 were included in the meta-analyses. Based on 15 studies, Higher risk of TB recurrence or relapse was found with ever using tobacco versus never using tobacco, risk ratio RR, 1.78, 95% C, 1.31 to 2.43, I2 equals 85%, current tobacco use versus no tobacco use, RR, 1.95, 95% C, 1.59 to 2.40, I2 equals 72%, and former tobacco use versus never using tobacco, RR, 1.84, 95% C, 1.21 to 2.80, I2 equals 4%. Heterogeneity arose from differences in study quality, design, and participant characteristics. 38 studies were identified for mortality, of which 13 reported mortality during treatment. Ever tobacco use, RR, 1.55, 95% C, 1.32 to 1.81, I2 equals 0% and current tobacco use, RR, 1.51, 95% C, 1.09 to 2.10, I2 equals 87%, 
significantly increased the likelihood of mortality during treatment among people with TB compared with never using tobacco and not currently using tobacco, respectively. Heterogeneity was explained largely by differences in study design. Almost all studies in the meta-analyses scored high or moderate on quality assessments. Narrative synthesis showed that tobacco use was a risk factor for other unfavorable TB treatment outcomes, as previously documented. Evidence on ST was limited, but identified studies suggested an increased risk for poor outcomes with its use compared with not using it. Interpretation Tobacco use significantly increases the risk of TB recurrence or relapse and mortality during treatment among people with TB, highlighting the need to address tobacco use to improve TB outcomes. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Association between T2-related comorbidities and effectiveness of biologics in severe asthma. Rationale, previous studies investigating the impact of comorbidities on the effectiveness of biologic agents have been relatively small and of short duration, and have not compared classes of biologic agents. Objectives, to determine the association between type 2-related comorbidities and biologic agent effectiveness in adults with severe asthma, SA. Methods, this cohort study used International Severe Asthma Registry data from 21 countries, 2017 to 2022, to quantify changes in four outcomes before and after biologic therapy, annual asthma exacerbation rate, FEV 1% predicted, asthma control, and long-term oral corticosteroid daily dose, in patients with or without allergic rhinitis, chronic rhinosinusitis, CRS, with or without nasal polyps, NPs, NPs or eczema-slash-atopic dermatitis. Measurements and main results, of 1,765 patients, 1,257, 421, and 87 initiated anti-IL-5 fifths receptor, anti-EGA, and anti-IL-4-slash-13 therapies, respectively. In general, pre-versus-post-biologic therapy improvements were noted in all four asthma outcomes assessed, irrespective of comorbidity status. However, patients with comorbid CRS with or without NPs experienced 23% fewer exacerbations per year, 95% C, 10-35%, P less than 0.001, and had 59% higher odds of better post-biologic therapy asthma control, 95% C, 26-102%, P less than 0.001, than those without CRS with or without NPs. Similar estimates were noted for those with comorbid NPs, 22% fewer exacerbations and 56% higher odds of better post-biologic therapy control. Patients with SA and CRS with or without NPs had an additional FEV 1% predicted improvement of 3.2%, 95% C, 1.0 to 5.3, P equals 0.004, a trend that was also noted in those with comorbid NPs. The presence of allergic rhinitis or atopic dermatitis was not associated with post-biologic therapy effect for any outcome assessed. Conclusions, these findings highlight the importance of systematic comorbidity evaluation. The presence of CRS with or without NPs or NPs alone may be considered a predictor of the effectiveness of biologic agents in patients with SA. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. 
real-world efficacy of dupilumab in severe, treatment refractory, and fibrostenotic patients with eosinophilic esophagitis. Background and Names Dupilumab is approved for treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis, oh, but real-world data are lacking. We aim to determine the real-world efficacy of dupilumab in patients with severe, treatment refractory, and fibrostenotic O. Methods We conducted a retrospective cohort study of O patients prescribed dupilumab and who were treatment refractory to standard modalities. Patient demographics, clinical characteristics, O history, and procedural data, including the histologically worst, predupilumab, and postdupilumab endoscopies, were extracted from medical records. Symptomatic, endoscopic, and histologic responses were assessed for the worst and predupilumab endoscopies compared with the postdupilumab endoscopy. Results We identified 46 patients with refractory fibrostenotic O who were treated with dupilumab. Patients showed endoscopic, histologic, and symptomatic improvement on dupilumab compared with both the worst and the predupilumab esophagogastroduodenoscopies. The peak eosinophil counts decreased markedly, and post-dupilumab histologic response rates were 80% and 57% for fewer than 15 eosinophils per high-power field and 6 or fewer eosinophils per high-power field, respectively, and the endoscopic reference score decreased from 5.01 to 1.89, p less than 0.001 for all. Although the proportion of strictures was stable, there was a significant increase in the predilation esophageal diameter from 13.9 to 16.0 mm, P less than 0.001. Global symptom improvement was reported in 91%, P less than 0.001. Conclusions In this population of severe, refractory, and fibrostenotico patients, most achieved histologic, endoscopic, and symptom improvement with a median of 6 months of dupilumab, and esophageal stricture diameter improved. Dupilumab has real-world efficacy for a severe O population, most of whom would not have qualified for prior clinical trials. Hepatocellular Carcinoma Surveillance Patterns and Outcomes in Patients with Cirrhosis Background and Names Hepatocellular Carcinoma, HCC, surveillance is associated with improved early detection and reduced mortality, although practice patterns and effectiveness vary in clinical practice. We aim to characterize HCC surveillance patterns in a large, diverse cohort of patients with HCC. Methods We conducted a retrospective cohort study of patients diagnosed with HCC between January 2008 and December 2022 at two large U.S. health systems. We recorded imaging receipt in the year before HCC diagnosis, ultrasound plus alpha-fetoprotein, AFP, ultrasound alone, multiphasic contrast-enhanced computed tomography, CT-slash-magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, and no-liver imaging. We used multivariable logistic and Cox regression analysis to compare early tumor detection, curative treatment receipt, and overall survival between surveillance strategies. Results Among 2028 patients with HCC, 46.7% Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer Stage A, 703, 34.7%, had ultrasound plus AFP, 293, 14.5%, had ultrasound alone, 326, 16.1%, had multiphasic CT slash MRI and 706, 
34.8%, had no imaging in the year before HCC diagnosis. Over the study period, proportions without imaging were stable, whereas use of CT-MRI increased. Compared with no imaging, CT-MRI and ultrasound plus AFP, but not ultrasound alone, were associated with early-stage HCC detection and curative treatment. Compared with ultrasound alone, CT-MRI and ultrasound plus AFP were associated with increased early-stage detection. Conclusions HCC surveillance patterns vary in clinical practice and are associated with differing clinical outcomes. While awaiting data to determine if CT or MRI surveillance can be performed in a cost-effective manner in selected patients, AFP has a complementary role to ultrasound-based surveillance, supporting its adoption in practice guidelines. Next article is from Clinical and Translational Gastroenterology. Development and validation of serum markers as non-invasive diagnostic methods for achalasia. Introduction. Currently, the diagnosis of achalasia mainly relies on invasive or radioactive examinations. This study aimed to develop a non-invasive diagnostic method for achalasia based on specific serum markers. Methods. Serum levels of profilin 1, collectin 10, immunoglobulin heavy variable 3 to 9, vasodilator stimulated phosphoprotein, and transgelin 2 were measured in patients with achalasia and controls by enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. The diagnostic values and thresholds were determined by the receiver operating characteristic curve analysis. Then, patients with dysphagia were prospectively enrolled to validate the ability of these molecules for achalasia diagnosing. Results A total of 142 patients with achalasia and 50 non-achalasia controls, healthy volunteers and patients with reflux esophagitis, were retrospectively included. The serum levels of profilin 1, galactin 10, and transgelin 2 in patients with achalasia were significantly higher than those in healthy volunteers and patients with reflux esophagitis, p all less than 0.001. Profilin 1, galactin 10, and transgelin 2 were of good performance in diagnosing achalasia with optimal thresholds of 2,171.2, 33.9, and 1,630.6 pg per milliliter respectively. Second, 40 patients with dysphagia were prospectively enrolled to the validation of achalasia. For profilin 1, the positive predictive value, negative predictive value, sensitivity, and specificity were 100.0%, and 100.0%, respectively. The figures for transgelin 2 were 65.5%, 90 90.9%, 95.0%, and 50.0%. When both increased, the positive predictive value reached to 100.0%. When both indexes were normal, the negative predictive value was 100.0%. Discussion Profilin 1 and transgelin 2 were promising biomarkers for achalasia diagnosis and performed better in combination. Further multicenter studies are necessary to verify their application to preliminary screening tools for achalasia. Next article is from Clinical Kidney Journal. Differentiating primary and secondary FSGS using non-invasive urine biomarkers. 
Background Focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, FSGS, is divided into genetic, primary, P, uncertain cause, and secondary, S, forms. The subclasses differ in management and prognosis with differentiation often being challenging. We aim to identify specific urine protein-slash-peptides discriminating between clinical and biopsy-proven PFSGS and SFSGS. Methods 63 urine samples were collected in two different centers, 19 PFSGS and 44 SFSGS, prior to biopsy. Samples were analyzed using capillary electrophoresis-coupled mass spectrometry. For biomarker definition, datasets of age-slash-sex match normal controls, NC, N equals 98, and patients with other chronic kidney diseases, CKDs, N equals 100, were extracted from the urinary proteome database. Independent specificity assessment was performed in additional data of NC, N equals 110, and CKD, N equals 170. Results Proteomics data from patients with PFSGS were first compared to NC, N equals 98. This resulted in 1179 biomarker, P less than 0.05, candidates. Then, the PFSGS group was compared to SFSGS, and in a third step, PFSGS data were compared to data from different CKD etiologies, N equals 100. Finally, 93 biomarkers were identified and combined in a classifier, PFSGS 93. Total cross-validation of this classifier resulted in an area under the receiving operating curve of 0.95. The specificity investigated in an independent set of NC and CKD of other etiologies was 99.1% for NC and 94.7% for CKD, respectively. The defined biomarkers are largely fragments of different collagens, 49%. Conclusion a urine peptide-based classifier that selectively detects PFSGS could be developed. Specificity of 95% to 99% could be assessed in independent samples. Sensitivity must be confirmed in independent cohorts before routine clinical application. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.